And welcome back to the Heads and Tails podcast. This week we hear from former standout ice hockey player Dr. Robert Huggins, who is Vice President of Research and Athlete Health and Safety at the Corey Stringer Institute in the fourth and final part of our Heat Stroke Educational Series. Dr. Huggins discusses the ins and outs of proper heat acclimatization, the economic benefits of employing athletic trainers, and we hear from a heat stroke survivor named Richard Dodakian, who credits Dr. Huggins for saving his life back in 2013. For detailed show notes on this episode, head over to headsandtails.org backslash podcast backslash 41. I'm going to be taking a week off from posting an episode in order to make some new and exciting changes to the structure of Heads and Tails. Uh, but we have some really exciting stuff coming up, which includes a sports psychology series with the team at Mind of the Athlete, four athlete interviews with the team from Parabolic Performance and Rehab, an interview with U.S. Army Captain and Green Beret Ben Haro, and interviews with two former Rutgers football players, Mason Robinson and Eric Legrand. But now, without further ado, meet Dr. Rob Huggins. This is Kevin Som, you're listening to the Heads and Tails Podcast, where we share stories of perseverance and inspiration in sports and in life. All right, Dr. Huggins, um, so what sports did you play growing up? So I grew up uh, playing uh, ice hockey. Uh, that was primarily my sport. started when I was five years old and played up through uh, college. Um, I also played lacrosse and, and baseball as well. And I, Hockey and lax? Yeah, and uh, I dabbled in football uh, in high school for, for a year and a half. Okay. And, uh, it was mostly out of a, a dare that my buddy said that hockey players don't get hit as hard as football players. So I said, "Well, you, you, I, I he, think he was the first person you sought out at practice." Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Except he was six foot two and like two hundred pounds, so probably not a good idea. All right. <laughs> Either way, you did it. Yeah. Um, what was your favorite memory from your sports career? Uh, my favorite memory is actually when I, um, after high school. Um, w- I was a part of a group of, of players that uh, uh, kind of moved our high, made our high school reputable in the sport of ice hockey in, in Connecticut. Okay. Uh, and we got to playoffs, and we actually lost in the playoffs that year. And the, the following year, I had the ability to come back and work as a coach, assistant coach with the team. And the team went to the national championship the oh, following wow. year. And it's no for, joke. For, yeah, for Division II in, in Connecticut. Um, and that program had gone from nothing to something largely in part due to myself and the other you know, six seniors that were. And what school was this? Uh, North Haven High School in North Haven, Connecticut. All right, cool. So yeah, That's something to be proud of for sure. So act- it's, it's a sports moment of mine that, that kind of came full circle as I you know transitioned. I never thought it would be as a assistant coach, but it was more as, a, you know, that, that was my favorite moment by far. Cool. Um, what injuries did you suffer from uh, as an athlete growing up? Um, so I had chronic ankle uh, uh, sprains, um, my left ankle, and I had um, some some knee issues here and there. But the worst injury was a, a quad contusion that I suffered. A, a player had stuck out their knee during ice hockey, and it hit my quad. And uh, it resulted in like three months of rehab because the – the blood and stuff had started right. to ossify in my in my quad. I've heard of that happening. So yeah. bone growth had kind of started within my muscle, and it wasn't managed appropriately. I didn't have an athletic trainer uh, to to tell me what I should have been doing. Right. Um, what should you have been doing? Um. Well, rest, ice, compression, mobiliza- you know, mobilization, and uh, it also should have been put in a flexed position. Come to find out, not oh, an not extended st- position. Okay. So the extended position allows for all the blood to kind of pool within the muscles, and uh, and that's what. The inflammation eventually, if you're not treating treating it appropriately in the weeks to come, will start to form bone growth within right. the muscle. So, 
That's a problem, yep. Yeah. Do you remember what kind of thoughts and feelings were going on in your head when you had th- that, that injury, when you were out of the, the game for a while? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, for me, it was uh, very difficult. I was in my junior year of, of high school. It was really hard for me to not be helping my, my team, especially being a captain, uh, being able to lead them. Oh, as a junior? Uh, yeah. Oh, dude, you were pretty good so, then, huh? Yeah, <laughs> I, I played hard. Um, but uh, it was really hard to not be helping assist them towards, you know, the, the season's goal. And I was out for, for a couple months, so it was it was difficult. The crutches, the, the, the yeah. re, you know, the rehab or lack thereof that I should have had well, made things a lot longer than it needed to be. Do you have any advice for athletes who might be feeling the same way? Um, well, in then I was young. And then as I became an athletic trainer and dealing with athletes, I learned the larger picture uh, of it in that you need to treat, you need, you need to find and seek the information to treat that injury the best you can by people who know what they're talking about. Um, and it's okay to go to the more than one doctor and more than one athletic trainer, um, but you also have to have the motivation to get better. You know, I think uh, athletes internally, you know, they, they, uh, how do I say this? They, their self-perception of who they are, their self-identity is very high with the sport in which they play. Exactly. And when yeah. you take away the por- sport in which they play, their identity sometimes goes with it. Um, and, I, and you're going to go through those feelings. But staying positive, you know, doing, conducting your rehabs, doing the things. Doing what you, you can do. What you can do, working, getting answers, um, you know, reading up on things. Or, you know, Internet is great now. You can get a lot of information very quickly. You could be your um, own physical therapist. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you, although I wouldn't recommend it. But, uh, yeah, exactly. You know, you, you know, people go to school for a long time to try and get athletes back as fast as possible. And there's great technology that's out there nowadays. So I really think that, um, you know, if you can do that, I think you'd be able to get back to the game a little bit more more quickly but i can definitely understand what an athlete is going through uh when they deal with that yeah um so what ultimately sparked your interest in athletic training um so actually initially i wanted to become a physical therapist i had shadowed a physical therapy program and i was like oh wow this is this is pretty cool like i can help people i loved helping people i loved you know athletics um i love i think you know uh, obesity and diabetes are a huge problem in our country and that was something I wanted to try and cardiovascular disease etc and I was like well I can give people the tools to be able to be healthy right uh, and then uh, once I got to uh, University of Connecticut which is where I graduated my undergraduate degree from um, I was exposed to athletic training through an observation experience that I had and I said this is this is fantastic this is like yeah. I can work with with people who share in the same motivation as me who understand what it means to be an athlete and be a part of a team and all the other positive aspects that come from sport. Um, so that's how I got involved with athletic training. And uh, I met uh, Dr. Casa, who I now work for, uh, you know, 15 years later. Okay. Um, uh, he His passion for, for preventing sudden death in sport and for keeping athletes safe was just something that really touched a, a piece of me you know, that I wanted to uh, continue to, to spread that word and keep athletes safe, keep kids safe. You know, no parent should ever see their kid die. So that's something that I wanted to assist with. Awesome. So that's I, where it I, kind I, of all went. <laughs> I share in that feeling. Um, so what was your uh, transition to life after sports like? I know we kind of touched on that a little bit ago. Um, you said you became a coach. Um, but did you struggle with that, like, kind of loss of identity? Yeah, yeah. It was very hard for me because so I – well, I, I was able – fortunate enough to play uh, club sports 
okay. at the University of Connecticut in ice hockey. I helped start that program. Oh, okay, Me cool. and uh, two other uh, hockey players. You're pretty good at starting things. Yeah. From what I could. Uh, <laughs> so. Uh, and me, finishing them. Yeah, I, I try to finish. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I started with two other uh, uh, good hockey players from the state. We were all on the the the, the state. Um, uh, the state team, you know, uh, for like from all high school, team, all, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. All, we were all, we all three of us were all state in Connecticut. We all ended up coming to Connecticut. Uh, and is there no hockey? Like, uh, there's a division one team. Um, and we tried out for the division one team, but they were having eight recruits come in that year. No excuses. Uh, okay. But I, I would have, uh, kicked myself if I didn't try, try yeah. to, to get on that team. And the three of us looked at each other and like, we can't do intramurals. Like this is what we, we would be those guys at intramurals. Yeah. So we said, let's let's see if we can form a club team. Like, there's club lacrosse at our school. There's club rugby. Like, why can't we start a club ice hockey team? Yeah. And we did. Um, we were – the first year was kind of a trial year, and then we got into the New England Club Hockey Association the following year. Cool. Um, and then the year after I graduated, uh, they went to the Nationals for club club ice hockey. Seems so, to be a trend. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. But uh, that that experience was just great. But then everything kind of stopped. Um, and to get back to your question, it was really hard for me. Uh, I tried, there was no hockey at the university of Virginia. Um, is that where, where I went for my master's? Okay. Um, and nor would I have had the time. Um, it was a one year accelerated, uh, master's program with a And the further South you go, the less popular yeah, hockey gets. Yeah. yeah. And in Charlottesville, Virginia, there is a rink. Um, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, I really didn't have the time, uh, to, to dedicate back to hockey. So I actually found, uh, some solace in, in, you know, uh, running, um, which I was, a ho- if you've ever seen a transition, if, yeah. if you've ever seen a hockey player run, it's <laughs> usually a lot of side to side stuff and it doesn't have very good form. Um, but, uh, you know, I was able to, to stay fit and stay healthy by doing that and lifting weights and, and things and whatever recreational activities I could kind of do outside. Cool. But, uh, I've always wanted to kind of get back into playing, you know, even if it's in a pickup league here in Connecticut, but, uh, life has gotten really busy. Okay. So I, Tends I, to happen. Yeah. I, I tend to, to, I've trained, I did my first marathon last, uh, November. Oh, congrats. Philadelphia marathon. And, um, uh, and, uh, that was a great feeling. So that's kind of keeping me, keeping me going. So I'm right. hoping to do the Hartford marathon this year. Right. I, I think the thing with sports is like when you have, when you're actually playing the sport, you get that feeling of the adrenaline rush or whatever it might be. <clears throat> you get that every day or every right. week or, you know, you get that all the time. Mm-hmm. But when you don't have that anymore you still have those moments yeah but they just don't happen like yeah, as they might frequently. be in like your backyard playing uh cornhole or horseshoes but exactly that's about it. yeah exactly yeah. um okay so when did you start uh getting involved with the Corey stringer institute so when i returned for my phd uh here at the university of connecticut back in 2010 um the Corey stringer institute which had just started to form the spring before i arrived um, and uh, much of the work that we did in our graduate classes was to help and assist with the Core oh, Stringer okay. Institute. So cool. whether it was helping to generate web content or policies and pursuit, but it was also a learning experience for the graduate students because right. w- uh, the course was preventing sudden death in sport. So uh, I got involved with KSI there, and then I transitioned into a, um, a assistant director of uh, athlete uh, performance and safety uh, role here, uh, and then went to... Uh, director of, of uh, performance and safety, and then now the vice president of research and performance. And Damn. Safety. So um, have kind of moved my way up, uh, you know, over the years here, and 
I'm really in charge of a lot of the research that goes on uh, with our PhD students and our master's students here. Cool. So, um, so that's your main role, you'd say, with the the research right now. Yeah, research. Um, I have uh, I work closely with the NFL um, and the National Athletic Trainers Association. Okay. Those are my uh, where kind of my funding for my projects come from. Okay. Um, so what do you do? Just call up Roger and say like, Hey, can I get some money? We're doing this research project. No. So well, the NFL is a corporate partner of the Corey Stringer Institute. Um, I saw uh, that after after the death of Corey Stringer, the NFL said we don't ever want this to happen to any other player. Uh, in our organization or any other organization. So let's start an institute that gives back, that is going to really be the experts in preventing sudden death in sport, disseminate that knowledge, educate people, and let's get healthcare providers, let's get more athletic trainers into these areas because they're like, how do we best improve health and safety? Well, you need someone who's knowledgeable either in the high schools or in the collegiate setting or wherever to be able to disseminate that information right. and, and be able be ready to treat the 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 subdural hematoma to treat right. the the when, when, when time is of the essence yep. right the heat stroke the cardiac care things like that yeah so th- those are kind of the things that that we work on so the NFL and they'll come to us and say how can we help you okay so we come up with a research agenda um, that is gonna either help to get athletic trainers into schools that is going to be targeting you know um, the key and big research questions that sometimes we don't have the funding from a company to, you know, ask those questions. Right. And they very much promote the philanthropic aims of KSI. So you would say that the NFL is very supportive of improving health and safety. You don't think it's just like a PR stunt or anything like that? Not a chance. I've met with um, some of the best minds at the NFL from Mm -hmm. a health and safety perspective. Yeah. I've met with, with Roger Goodell. I've met with, um, you know, uh, some of the previous ownership, uh, leadership from the NFL. And they are so, Roger Goodell in particular, is one of the most forward-thinking individuals I've ever met. Okay. That man can walk into a meeting and pick right up with what's going on uh, and, and knows exactly why you're there, what you're there for. And he has been supportive of what we've done um, from a health and safety perspective. And, and uh, just to uh, uh, Jeff Miller is the person that's in charge of the NFL health and safety. Yeah, I've and I've heard of him. He yeah. he like he's a lawyer, right? Um, I believe yeah, he has yeah. A, a degree in, in law and then uh, business as well. But uh, he cares about every sport, every kid's sport that there is. Okay, football. Yes, he works for the NFL, but he cares about all kids and their safety in sport. So anything that we can do to prevent you know, any issues from happening in youth sports or high school sports or collegiate sports or professional, right. he's completely for it. And that's his job is to help help us. You, you know, know that, that's things. really awesome to hear because when you, from an outsider's perspective, when you watch ESPN or you watch whatever news outlet is out there, you know, Roger Goodell gets kind of like a bad image. You know, oh, people, yeah. he gets booed all the time, this and that. Um, and I mean, I'll be honest, like I kind of, get into that like mindset just because he's portrayed as being this like bad guy. You yeah. Know? The media has very strong, you know, um, twists on a lot of the things right. that, that go on. And there are, you know, thousands of things that the NFL does that we know of and that they team up with us on right. to help keep health and safety. Like kids participation in youth sports and football is in youth football is going down. Right, and a lot of that is due to bad press and things like exactly, that. But there's yeah. also there's safe ways to play the game, exactly, and there's yeah. ways that kids 
cannot miss out on those, you know, not only the health benefits, but right. the the uh, psycho the social benefits of playing football and all of the good things that you learn exactly, playing yeah. the game that you love. Yeah, you even know? though I almost died playing football, if I can go back and do it a hundred other times, you know, I would do it. I would just say something when my head hurt, basically. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's education, it's knowledge, it's letting kids know it's okay that if you're injured or if you feel something that's different to inform an adult, to inform right. a coach, an athletic trainer, I mean, somebody. Yeah, this just gets me thinking that like the NFL needs to do more to promote the good things that they do in terms of health and safety. Yeah. Because sometimes it does come off as like ingenuine, almost in like the timing of it. Like I remember this one um, NFL evo- evolution mm-hmm. uh, commercial, which is like their health and safety website. It has a lot of good information Correct. on it uh, in terms of sports health and safety. But I remember they like – I think they aired it at the Super Bowl, obviously when it would get the most press, but it almost seemed like – it's like – yeah, you're spending all this money to be at the Super Bowl or you're, you know, you just had a whole bunch of people over to have, you know, to watch the Super Bowl and all this money is being generated. And it's like, yeah, we know that the players get hurt and they have, like, struggles afterwards and health and safety is an issue, but, you know, we're trying, you know. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, to, to their credit, like, they, they've, they've uh, tried to get sound research and sound information to make informed right. decisions, which, you know, what where we were five years ago is not even we're like so far ahead of where we were uh, right. five years ago uh, in terms of even concussion or heat stroke care. Right, there are countless athletes whose lives at even the NFL or or other levels are being saved that you don't hear about. Exactly, you only hear about the bad stuff that happens. Right, there's there's numerous athletes that are being saved because of the policies and procedures and the agreements and the things that are put in place by the medical staff and then. They, they're trying to support research to make sure that we're still improving, constantly improving those things. So, right. That's awesome to yeah. hear. So you heard it here. Roger Goodell isn't isn't the bad guy. <laughs> um, okay. So since we're here at the Corey Stringer Institute, um, I think we're we're going to talk about uh, a story about Richard Dodekin. Dodekian. Dodekian. That was kind of so, close, I guess. Yeah. Um, so do you want to talk about his experience with, with heat stroke? I know you were – you treated him, did, you know, yeah. in, initially. Um, so can you tell us about kind of his situation? Yeah. So uh, Richard has a great little blog on, on our website at, at ksi.ucon.edu. I'll post it up in the show yeah. notes here. And um, it, he kind of rec- uh, recalled his story and recounted that uh, for us um, and has given permission for me to discuss, you know, the, the experiences. Hippo issues, yeah. Experiences that he, that he had, and he hopes that his story can help others. Um, he's a middle-aged uh, male, uh, you know, runner. Um, who has been running the Falmouth Road Race? Falmouth is uh, is a, in Massachusetts. It's about a seven-mile race uh, in the middle of uh, uh, the day, essentially in August. Um, Bad you know. combo. <laughs> yeah, but it's been you know it originally started as a run from one bar to another bar, as all you know great races do. <laughs> um, but he and his family have taken part in that race for years, and this year uh, he's also a businessman. And he deals with a lot of overseas, international, Japan, and, and Chinese uh, business. Uh, so he's up at late late hours of the night or very early Sleeping, in the morning. Sleeping's so, an issue. So you see that sleep's a, a problem here. He trained in the morning in uh, you know cooler environments, which we recommend if you're trying to avoid heat-related illness. But if you want it, the adaptations of right. of uh, you know heat acclimatization, you kind of need to expose yourself to some heat. So running in the middle of the day isn't necessarily a bad thing. As long as you have the ability, you know, water cooling, et cetera. 
Um, but he did not do that. Um, and he had a wedding the night before the race. So he actually informed me that he did not partake in any, you know, libations or anything like that. Right. Um, and actually was being good because he really wanted to break an hour was his, okay. his, his time that he wanted to break. Um, and he had a brother-in-law who also stated that he wanted to beat him. So there's extrinsic motivation going on here. There's lack of sleep. There's potential lack of dehydration um, and lack of heat acclimatization, you know, and, and I don't know what his whole training was up until that point. Right. So Richard uh, 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 said that he got to mile, I think it was five or so, and recalled seeing his daughter at that point in time. His daughter was running the race, I think, with him, um, and he remembers that. So it's like three quarters of the way through the race. Yeah, so two miles left in the race, he recalls absolutely nothing. Cannot remember anything. Uh, he, f- uh, crossed the f- he collapsed, and then he crossed the finish line. And when he crossed the finish line, I was in the medical tent um, with the Corey Stringer Institute, as we are every year, um, because there are a lot of heat-related illnesses that happen. Richard was, uh, uh, his, his rectal temperature is the most valid measure of core body temperature. Talked about that with uh, Dr. Uh, Casa. Good. Um, so uh, his temperature was 107.7. So what's the threshold that makes you um, exhibit uh, heat stroke? Yeah. So um, in a lot of literature, it's saying around 104.5. Um, uh, so he was in excess of 104.5. Uh, and uh, he also displayed central nervous system dysfunction. Uh, so he was dizzy, confused, disoriented, Etc. Vomiting, nausea, n- uh, all, nausea, all sorts of symptoms that are usually indicative of heat stroke. Um, so we had the two criteria, which were the core temp above 104.5 and the CNS dysfunction. He was uh, he came over to my tub. Um, actually, I had actually I had just finished cooling another victim, and then someone called and told me I need to go over to this other tub, and we started cooling him. We cooled him for 20 minutes, and in the 20 minutes he came down to 104.5. So not that much. So, yeah. So even with rapid ice water immersion and constant cooling uh, of this of this gentleman, uh, of Richard, uh, he got down. I asked the physician, our protocol is 20 minutes or remove them when they hit 102. So he was not at 102 yet. So the physician said, let's keep cooling him. So I cooled him down a little bit more, and he got to 103.3. And I asked the physician, what would you like to do now? He said, well, let's take him out. Within a couple of minutes, he rose back up to 104. Why is that? Um, he, he, your your brain kind of shuts off. Your thermoregulatory center in the brain shuts off. It's in complete dysfunction. There's no idea what's going on. Right. Yet. So so you're, all that heat that you produced from the exercise that you just did, all that metabolic, muscular-generated heat that's in your body, your body's having trouble dissipating it. Okay. Um, and when you can't get rid of it fast enough, you ensue with, with a heat stroke. And then you have the disorientation, the confusion, uh, et cetera. So um, we then put him back in the tub. And then his because his thermoregulatory center was completely shut off, he dropped to 95.4. So now he's okay. too low. So yeah. now he's too low. And then we brought him back out into the very sun that gave him that heat stroke, essentially, to, warm to try up. and warm him up. Um, he wasn't rewarming as fast as we wanted. Um, but it was good that his tor- temperature was now down below the threshold for safety and my sanity, uh, below that to to allow him for his cells to not be completely damaged, which is how someone dies from heat stroke. Right. Uh, which Dr. Casa probably explained. To yeah, you. we talked about uh, Gavin's story. Even yeah. though he didn't, yeah, he didn't pass away, but he had a lot of uh, 
issues with he had to have a liver transplant and all sorts of correct so um, we then brought Richard to the hospital and I I took a ride with him in the ambulance to the hospital and as he started to come to um, you know we we started he was like how did this happen to me I can't believe this happened to me this is what I remember this is where I learned about the things that he had done pre-training but I'll never forget he was so disoriented he didn't even realize which race he was at um, when I was asking him orientation questions right. when I first saw him. And then uh, he actually looked me in the eye and said, am I going to die while I was treating him? And it was one of those moments where you're like, how do I respond yeah. to that question? You, but I knew like, I knew this was the right treatment for him. I knew I was doing the, the right thing. The, the right thing. Um, you know, and, and we've had patients kick, bite, punch, you know, get aggressive. Because they're disoriented? Because they don't know what's going on. Imagine the most drunk and inebriated person you've ever met in and your life. And then sticking a rectal thermometer and up? put a rectal thermometer in them and then sometimes an IV in their arm and put them in freezing cold water. Yeah. They kind of want to, you know, yeah. get out of that. They think something's going wrong. Um, but, uh, you know, when he started to come down and started to come to and be able to talk with me coherently, uh, that was a good sign. Right. And, uh, but... Uh, it was a pretty powerful experience, and I see Richard every year at the Falmouth Road Race now. Still doing uh, it. He's still doing it, and um, he had a great return t- to to uh, to running. Um, he Did he worked with you guys here. Yeah, he worked with us, uh, and he worked with some of the f- uh, medical directors of the Falmouth Road Race uh, to make sure that that his lab results and his blood work and things like that that he phased back into exercise appropriately, L- like the uh, Gavin and and right. Hunter. Um, athletes that we've worked with in the past. So how does that work? Like, do you guys take insurance and you can like work with these athletes that that come in here? Like, how do they book appointments? Is that something that you guys do, or um, it's kind of a fee for service okay. um, um, thing that we do? Uh, we don't bill their their insurance. We're not we're not able to to bill uh, their insurance. Um, but uh, they'll come in, and many times the university or the individual will will pay for a heat tolerance test or even just work with us on, on, you know, advice on how they should return to play. And sometimes we just offer our, our medical and expert opinion to them. Okay. Um, but, uh, yeah. Cool. Um, and so what do you think could have made him uh, avoid the heat stroke? Do you think it was the lack of sleep? I'm interested by that because I think sleep is such an interesting thing to me in terms of like what it does to your body. You know, it could, I've heard it, it could cause you to like, if you are overweight, like that could be a reason because you don't sleep well enough or whatever. So what about sleep makes you more susceptible to, uh, suffering exertional heat stroke? So Richard had a lot of things going on, you know, right. he, he, it always seems like it's not just one yeah, thing. Heat yet. stroke is always, I call it the perfect storm. Every single time there's multiple factors when there's not multiple factors. That's when I start thinking about genetic predisposition and stuff going on within that person's right. makeup. Um, but, uh, the sleep portion. So think of stress, right? Exercise places stress on your body. Um, life stress places stress on your body and hormones, cortisol. We've all heard of cortisol yeah. right? being kind of the stress, the stress yeah. hormone, I guess, going up in your, in your body. Well, if cortisol's up because maybe someone in your family just passed away or you're dealing with a, you lost your job, something like that. That hormone comes up just as much as it does during exercise. Sometimes you're adding those things together. Right. Sleep stresses the body. If you deprive someone, think of someone on the third shift, right? Right. They're deprived every single day of normal nocturnal sleep that they would, would be getting. They're probably not getting the same quality of sleep that they would get during the day because light it's light and it's really hard to transition your body to that. 
So that is that is uh, upregulating hormones, inflammatory markers, upregulating markers of stress and muscle damage, and you're not able to recover and heal from the things that you're doing day to day. Right. And your body's always adapting to what's occurred in the days preceding the event. So now I've just deprived you of sleep for five straight months because this is your job. Right. And you're exercising every morning. But you're not able to. But you're not able to recover appropriately. So I already have these inflammatory markers up right. in my body. And now I go and do a really intense exercise in the heat, potentially dehydrated. And I'm, I have, I'm a type A personality and I'm really motivated or a coach is yelling at me right. to, to go faster and you get the crowd and the whole deal. Um, people push themselves and push their body beyond that limit. And it gets to a, a point where a cascade occurs and essentially your temperature is too high. I can't dissipate that heat. Right. And the inf- massive amount of inflammation ensues in the body. It's, it's so. interesting that you say that because um, I had a grandma seizure after my initial mm-hmm. injury. I had a grandma seizure on the field. Uh, but I was fine for like seven years. I was seizure free. So I wasn't like deemed epileptic or anything, but about two years ago I went bowling with my girlfriend Mm -hmm. and we worked in the same building. So one, one of us drove, the other one drove back. And when we got back to our, our, our building, I started like feeling really nauseous. I just wasn't feeling right. I knew I was going to throw up. Mm-hmm. So it was like our first date. Not even kidding. <laughs> and so I get out of the Good car. Impression. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I get out of the car and I go to like throw up. So she's not there watching it happen. And then the next thing I know, I wake up and I'm on the ground. Right. So I passed out, but I also had a seizure. So I, I had like a history of, passing out when I throw up even like before my head injury hmm. but apparently now I have seizures when that happens because of whatever damage I did to my brain um but th- w- what I was really getting at was what led up to that like I there was no re like seven years went by and then all of a sudden now I have I had four seizures within an hour wow um so but before that that weekend this is like on a Monday that weekend I had a CrossFit competition Okay. Where I remember I did like a deadlift and I got this like weird taste in my mouth, like to the point where I probably either almost passed out or like gave myself a seizure. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the following day I woke up at like 4 a.m. to go watch my coworkers in this uh, half marathon that they were running. Yeah. So I had lack of sleep. Mm-hmm. And on the Monday, the day that I actually. Probably a good amount of muscle damage and, and yeah. infl- inflammation going on from the CrossFit. Yeah. And then on, on, on the Monday when I had the seizure, I worked my ass off like before work just I did like a ton of squats and like lunges and like and yeah. more so than I normally would do and it was also really hot that day like the air conditioner at work wasn't working perfect storm just like I oh my <laughs> yeah I'm like now it all makes sense like this is exactly why that that probably happened yeah I, I mean it's a it's a dose response you you stress yourself that much eventually if all those stress and then the environmental conditions are right that's when bad bad things happen. I just blame it on Chipotle now, but <laughs> <laughs> Chipotle. Um, so what's uh, what was uh, Richard's greatest obstacle uh, during his recovery, and how did he kind of overcome that? Or was it pretty smooth sailing because of the quick actions that, that you, you guys took? I mean, at first I think it was trying to understand why that happened to him, um, and, and then there was the realization that, he could have died and that he would have, you know, left his kids and his wife without a father or husband. And that part I think was really difficult for him to deal with, but he was extremely thankful and 
appreciative that the Falmouth Road Race has us and other people right. who know what they're they're doing and how to treat heat stroke there at the race. Um, but I, I know he came to our he actually came and visited our masters uh, one of our masters uh, classes, and he talked about um, some like numbness and tingling within his forearms that still hadn't really come back. Oh, really? Hey, after the fact. Wow. After the fact, uh, months, you know, months later. Um, but for him, I think it was pretty much, you know, a, a, a sign like, Hey, I gotta, I gotta start I, taking care of myself. I need to take care of myself. I need to do things, you know, before I race in the heat. Um, and I need to not let my intrinsic and personal motivation, exceed my athletic ability. Right. And that's kind of another factor that, that happened. And then making sure he know he now knows what heat acclimatization is. He understands that he can improve the things in his body to adapt to the heat. Right. And that's kind of what I wanted to get to next is a good transition for that. Um, so what can an athlete do to acclimate themselves, um, to heat? Cause we're coming up on training camp season now and you know, August is like the hottest month uh, of the year. So, what should athletes be doing to get themselves ready for for the the training camps? Sure. So, um, exercising in in a in a hot environment is going to create benefits for the athlete. Um, heat acclimatization is a fancy process for a fancy word for uh, adapt adaptations heat heat adaptations that an athlete can undergo, and it usually takes ten to fourteen days for full heat acclimatization to take place. Okay. Um, Athletes should, you know, start off by having, you know, gradually increasing their training program. Um, it could be running, it could be doing the exercises, could be lifting, could be cross training, etc. But the goal of it is to get your body temperature um, up to about, you know, 102 or so, which is normal exercising body temperature for most athletes that go out okay. in the heat. So it's normal to have yep. a bit of a fever after you work out. Yeah. So 102 <laughs> to 104 is a safe range. Okay. Um, and athletes, elite athletes will commonly go over 104, uh, and be completely fine, but their body has been acclimated, a- adapted to getting to that temperature and they're getting rid of that heat faster Right. because your heart rate will go down. Your, uh, ability to sweat will go up. You will hold on to sodium and electrolytes more easily and your base rectal temperature. So your temperature day to day will start to get lower. To start with. So if I okay. start at a lower body temperature right, every day, I'm going to be able to do more, but I'm also going to now I'm sweating more efficiently and my heart rate is down because it's, and you'll, you'll see a blood volume, a plasma expansion. So you're, you actually get more blood volume. Heat acclimatization is like legal blood doping. Okay. Pe- people use heat acclimatization if, even if they're going to a cold weather race because they know that ad- adaptations them, yeah. from a plasma blood volume expansion standpoint the more blood you have supplying your skin to cool and your muscles to exercise to actually perform work the more volume and gas you have in the availability to get to those areas the better okay so uh, heat acclimatization a lot of the blood related changes are going to happen within the first five to seven days and then the sweat and and sodium and holding on to some of those things will happen like 10 to 14 days so i would say exercising every single day Trying to get your body temperature to about 102 for about an hour consistently uh, for, for you know, those days is the best way to heat acclimatize. How do you gauge that you're close to – it's just like a, I'm feeling hot or – So um, 
for the for the lay, you know, the, for anyone that that wants to do that, the best the, if you really want to confirm it, you have to get a rectal temperature. So I know that sounds crazy, but people will use uh, regular Walgreens thermometers, you know, put them on the sun don't shine. Hold and, on, and uh, at, and just see where you're at. Right. At least you'll then know what that feels like. Right. You know, like you will be okay. I know I'm like 103. Right. Exactly. Right now. It's not like you have to do it like. You may not. You may not yeah. have to do it every t- every time, but as you become more trained and more heat acclimatized, you're going to have to exercise more intensely to get to 102. Okay. Because you're already adapting right. to to what is happening in the in those days before. But making sure you have plenty of fluids, well hydrated, that you s- get good night's sleep during this period. During of, this period, right. making sure that you're um, you're not sick. You should not be uh, trying to heat acclimatize when you're sick at all. Um, and then, you know, making sure urine color is nice and clear. Uh, if you're layering this on top of lifting and stuff like that, you kind of have to keep all this volume in mind and make sure that you're not putting yourself in a situation where you're going to, you know, pass out or, or get, you know, more damage, more stress like we talked right. about. So, well, uh, And I guess my, my last question in, in terms of acclimizing athletes, what about from like a coaching perspective? Like what should coaches know when they're – you know, holding those practices, like for, I'm a football guy. So I'm just thinking like non-padded, you know, running through plays and stuff like that. Like they should be doing stuff outside in the, in the heat to kind of prepare for, um, training camp when they got all the pads on and stuff like that. Right. So there's, there's, uh, processes that the National Athletic Trainers Association that we've, Dr. Casa and others here have published, about what you should do day one, day two, day three, okay. day four, day five. I'll include five that in the, the of, show notes of this of, episode. Of preseason. Um, the equipment they should wear, the intensity, the number and duration of practice sessions. Like there's no two-a-days in the first five days right? for proper okay. heat acclimatization. And then there's no equipment. There's no full equipment until day five. I think helmets starts like day three or day two. Yeah, I think that's pretty um, standard now, yeah. Um, but strength and conditioning time during that preseason week is included. In the total time. Okay. Um, rest breaks between the two two practices once they get to the five days. Um, and then all of that is trumped by environmental monitoring. So there are wet, they're called wet bulb globe temperature guidelines. This is exactly like heat index, but it takes into account the radiation from the sun and wind speed. So it's really telling you what it really feels like okay. outside. So, mo- so using the WBGT is far superior than heat index okay heat index doesn't give you the full picture so there are guidelines published as to work to rest ratios okay for coaches athletic trainers and athletes to follow tells you how many rest breaks you should have what water you should have if you should cancel practice right so if like the wet bulb globe temperature is too high there's no activity right i mean that's another reason why athletic trainers come into play because i remember when i was in high school we had this one practice where we had to go inside because it was too hot because of what was that thing called again the wet bulb globe temperature wet bulb globe temperature um and i was a sophomore at this point in time so i, I was in, ter- in charge of bringing the water up to the field sure. and, and back down who, who wasn't right yeah. <laughs> yeah and there was like this little chain that was that kept people like off the fields or whatever but it was like low hanging so it was probably like two inches off the ground so i was carrying these water jugs back to the locker room and I think I was like so hot and tired that I tripped over this chain. <laughs> I slipped, and because I, I had the Gatorade jugs on my arm and I had my pads in my other hand, I had nothing to like break my fall. So I just crushed my elbow on the pavement, and I had to get like six stitches on my elbow, and that I 
didn't really have a good uh, story to tell my coach as to why <laughs> I had to leave. Should have just told him it was too hot outside. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Listen to, to Miss Barba. She knows what she's talking about. Um, okay. So you want to talk about how you – we talked about this before, how you like, you like to start things in terms of uh, yeah. uh, your, your hockey team. But you also started the club sports uh, athletic training program. So you can – can you talk about like what kind of inspired you to do that? Sure. So having been a club sport athlete in college, I didn't have athletic training services at all. Right. Um, I, I was like the de facto, I'm taping my buddy's ankles and I'm evaluating people on my own team and I'm not even certified yeah. yet um, just to try and help them. And I could see there was a need here. We're playing high level schools. These kids are, they're, we're athletes too, you know, um, and we're getting injuries and it's our quality of life and our experience at college. So after I graduated from University of Virginia, um, Sacred Heart had a faculty position open. So I applied for the faculty position, and I didn't get the position, but I got an adjunct uh, to be able okay. to teach and whatnot. But it simultaneously, I found out that club sports wanted to get an athletic trainer, and that would have been the first club sports athletic trainer in the state of Connecticut. So there wasn't really any models for me to go off of. There wasn't really just any. Of. I just said, okay, I just got to use my education, my experience, and I need to establish a solid foundation here. And I did that at Sacred Heart. Awesome. Um, took care of 300 athletes by myself. Whoa. 22 teams, which was um, first my first mistake, <laughs> being too young and too eager. Yeah. Um, but I took care of, you know, the, the high-risk sports, and I stratified where I was at different right, times. Exactly. And I, I offered rehabilitation services. But that was a private school. So those things happened very, very quickly. So – Fast forward two years, um, I was the club sports athletic trainer uh, there for a while and then said, I'm going to go to uh, to UConn because uh, there was a PhD position open. And now they wanted to start a club sport athletic training program as well because they heard that Sacred you Heart did, was yeah. doing it. So I said, well, I'm pretty sure I can start this for you. So I came up to UConn and started the club sport athletic training program there, but that took eight months. And the reason it took eight months was because there was a lot of education that still had to, to take place. I had to, uh, you know, there was a misconception that we didn't need athletes' medical records, that we, I wanted to make sure that we set this up appropriately, like these athletes are getting good care. Um, there was a misconception that I would just go and cover the sports and just be there in case of an emergency. Right. I'm like, no, 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 no. I rehab athletes. I make sure that they get back to play. I screen and make sure, and I'm protecting the university too by not sending a kid out there that may have a predisposing risk factor for, right. uh, you know, sickle cell trade or, or making sure that someone who's an asthmatic has the things on the sideline that they need in case they have an, you know, attack, have an yeah. attack or an AD on the sideline, you know, things like that. So started that program. It took a little bit longer, but proud to say that it got established. Um, I only took care of six sports this time. Um, Not but, it was, but it was still 100 and something athletes, 125 athletes or something like that. And it grew from one athletic trainer to three in a couple of years. Awesome. So as I transitioned off that position, other PhD athletic trainers stepped in, and, and that's still a position here at UConn now. Cool. And still a position at Sacred Heart now. So, uh, How common is that in at universities uh, around the, the country? So as a part of that eight-month process, um, I was pretty much asked by my administration, they said, so what are other people doing? Like, should should are they doing the same thing? Like, what's the standard of care for club sports across universities? Right. So I called 80 different universities that were peer, regional, geographic, et cetera, aspirant universities, and asked what they were doing. 
Um, and a good amount of them had club sports athletic trainers, but they were either in student affairs or, or, or athletics or, right. or uh, um, through the infirmary and, and medicine. Um, and I actually presented this study that I kind of did at the National Athletic Trainers Association meeting uh, back in, I think, 2011. Um, and it was very well received because club sports athletic training yeah. is becoming huge across the country because universities want kids to stay at their university, right? Right, not transferred. If, if you identify really high with hockey or football or whatever, you're going to want to play that sport because it's such a big part of you. Yeah. And now you're telling me you have medical services and someone's going to take care of me while I'm doing that? Perfect, It's a yeah. re- It's a retention tool for universities. Cool. So. I think we're going to start getting into that discussion as well as far yeah. as uh, – kind of economic reasons that athletic trainers are important as well. Absolutely. Um, so starting that discussion, how can athletic training services be improved at the high school and youth sports level? I know you do a lot of work with these kind of policies. Yep. So um, first we had to figure out what athletic training services were being provided across the country. So at KSI, we called all every, every single secondary school across the country. So 26,000 schools, we called every single one of them individually, and we called them up to four times if they didn't respond to us. And we asked them, do you have athletic training services? Right. So that was released uh, a year ago. Uh, Rihanna Pryor authored, that, work. Yeah. authored that document. It took three and a half years of data cl- of calling to get this information, and we found that only 39% of, of um, high schools across the country, of public high schools, have athletic training services full-time. Full-time, yeah. But – Almost 80% of schools have some sort of athletic training coverage. Now, that could be full, part-time, or per diem. But like 88% of athletes Yeah, this have, is what uh, yeah. Dr. Casa was saying, too. Yeah. So my number should be close to his sometimes. Yeah, no, yeah. it's almost identical, I think. Um, um, some might be one or two off there. It's been a little while. But we had to figure out how what, what type of services people were providing. Then we can kind of go in and say, say this is what the full-time people are providing and this is what the part-time people are providing. And we got access from insurance companies. Um, each school district has ins- has an insurance policy. Correct. Overlay- most of them do, overlaying, so that if you suffer a, a brain injury or something like that while you're on the field and your parents' insurance doesn't cover it. My parents would have went bankrupt if, if the yeah. school didn't have insurance. So your school had secondary uh, accident coverage. So we contacted those companies that offer the secondary access coverage and asked them to give us all of their data. So now I have who has full-time and who has part-time, and I can show you that the athletic trainer saves money on uh, in the full-time capacity compared to the part-time capacity. Awesome. So how, like, by how much would you say? Um, right. So Yuri Hasakawa and I right now are still collecting data uh, on that project. We also had a massive amount of claims come in just recently that we need to be processing. Okay. But preliminary data is showing it's about half of the cost, which 50% That's of crazy, yeah. thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars is a lot of money. But getting back to the high school, the high school doesn't – and the parents – don't realize that the athletic trainer could be reducing these costs for your whole community. So when a school says they can't hire a full-time athletic trainer, it's kind of like, okay, you don't understand the investment that you're making by having the full-time athletic trainer. Not only will it save a kid's life potentially. Correct. But So there's three aspects, right? There's the services they provide every day, preventative services. Like if I tape your ankle and you end up not having uh, ankle instability for the rest of your life, rehabs, 
osteoarthritis down the road, all those things that the AT could be preventing on a day-to-day basis. Never mind education to you about what a concussion signs and symptoms are or what heat stroke is like. So those are non-quantifiable things that the AT does. Then there's the liability and the insurance piece that we've actually seen um, districts, so like school boards, we've seen their insurance premiums come down because they have an athletic trainer doing what they're supposed to be doing. You get you have evidence for that? Yeah. So we've actually seen them come down because uh, they hire the full-time athletic trainer because they're doing rehabs on site. You don't have to go to a physical therapist. Right. I'm, I, an athletic trainer can do those things for you. Unnecessary ER visits. You have a concussion. An athletic trainer evaluates you. You don't need to go get a CAT scan, an MRI, an X-ray. All that. You, you don't need that. You might. If they deem that you do, then that's an appropriate Send, Next step, yeah. Right? But how many kids are sent to the ER and backup hospitals because they have a concussion? And then they're and, like, uh, just go home? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that athletic trainer is the one that's managing it anyways. Right. So there goes five to six visits to a physician that may not be necessary if that athletic trainer and that's is saving insurance as well. Saving insurance for the parent on their primary insurance and the school on their secondary if it was a school-related accident. Right. And then the last part is the piece you just touched on, the catastrophic piece or the long-term disability piece. Yeah. So um, that's kind of how we're working to get athletic training services in the high school setting. We mapped also all those schools that we called. I mapped every single athletic training service across the country. So every school is on a map at our website. You okay. can see it. And all right. Can, I'll link that up too. And uh, that's a huge initiative of the secondary school committee at the National Athletic Training Association. That's so, so cool to hear that that's, that's yeah. going on. Um, so what are the best practices for, like, emergencies in youth a- athletics? Like, in terms of, like, brain injuries, spine injuries. Like, w- what kind of stuff do you guys provide in terms of education and resources and advocacy for, like, the youth level? I always go back to the youth level because they seem like they're oftentimes the most at risk. Yes. But they also have the least amount of coverage at some, so in some w- cases. When you, so we've actually, we had a, a youth sports safety governing bodies meeting in New, held in New York at the NFL headquarters where we brought in the heads of all of USA football, U.S. soccer, U.S. lacrosse, hockey, gymnastics. The governing bodies, yeah. Yeah, we brought all of them in and said, okay, let's talk about best practice because each one of them is a separate entity and they're all trying to educate and recommend things. But it's very hard for them to mandate things because let's say those things cost money, right. right? So for them to say, I want an, we need, they know that they need an AED, that AED at every single, every single site. But they're $1,000. But they're $1,000 each, right? And for U.S. soccer to do that on every single soccer field across the country for a U.S. soccer event is logistically impossible. Right. And, and these organizations, their goal is to increase participation in their sport and if you set these standards that you have to have an AED, then you're keeping people from playing the sport because of financial reasons. Right. So until we get appropriate medical coverage to those events where that athletic trainer brings the AED, right. where that athletic trainer is able to come to that event and be there in case of emergency, now those logistics don't become such a concern. Um, but youth sports, I mean, they're, it's, it's also untapped from a documentation standpoint. You need coaches aren't reporting the injuries that an athlete that on the Sunday right. sustains during a soccer game. That athletic trainer has to document the injuries that are occurring. 
So we have very limited data coming into us right now from a research perspective to actually see if there's a problem at youth sports. Right. So you can see how by just having someone there from an athletic training perspective would, would assist with that. Exactly. But those yeah. things cost money and they cost a lot more than AED to have an athletic trainer at an event. Right. So we are, you know, exploring and, and promoting and trying to f- get companies to look at unique ways of getting athletic training services to youth sports. Can you but, give me like an example of one of those unique ways? Um, I think it's just people trying to come up with, you know, ways to fund within their, their, their leagues, you know, uh, a per diem, even if it's a per diem athletic trainer, someone just to be there for the games to come right. and help. Um, maybe it's someone that's a part of the organization already. Uh, maybe it's a part of the, the town leagues, you know, um, w- making sure that the health and safety of those athletes is put at the forefront, at least from an education and resource standpoint. But I mean, we have countless resources, countless documents on best practice and what's okay. what's supposed to be out there. But um, I just, as a part of that youth sports governing bodies meeting that we held, right. there'll be a, a task force uh, best practice document for youth sports and all the ways an athlete could potentially die during sport. Um, that is going to be published hopefully soon in the Journal of Athletic Training. Okay, cool. So now all these organizations can use that document to say, okay, this is best practice. We need to start moving strategically towards that. Like let's start making emergency action plans, which costs no money at right, all, at, all. To, at each one of our venues. Like right. that's the first step. Step two, AEDs, where are they just nearest location if you can't have one on site? Maybe it's across the street or down the at the nearest fire. But at least you know. You know, or police is going to get there in two minutes or three minutes. You know, I know there's very rural communities out there, but um, at least having a plan right. to get that AED there. Awesome. Um, the last question I was going to ask you in this discussion is uh, in terms of training load and performance and kind of like overtraining. Sure. Um, so how do you kind of avoid overtraining and what are the symptoms of overtraining mm-hmm. and what can that do? We kind of talked about this, what that can do to you in terms of uh, exertional heat stroke, but also in terms of athletic performance. So, um, overtraining is really when someone gets, it's a very serious kind of breakdown state. And, and some of the signs and symptoms are very similar to that of depression, um, anxiety, um, in a, you know, fatigue, excessive fatigue, but it's very hard to differentiate that from just someone who's just, you know, even in college, like we see this all the time, like kids are sleepy, they're tired, they're, right. they're working hard, et cetera. So, um, or they're, they're depressed, et cetera. Those things happen. So it's very hard to see, see those symptoms, but sometimes an athlete will not be able to have gains. Like they're just not getting any better. They're, they're struggling where they once were able to perform they just can't find the motivation to perform or when they go to try to do their races or effort, they just aren't able to do it. And they find themselves in a constant state of fatigue. That's overtraining. Um, Overreaching and the zone of enhanced performance is really where strength conditioning coaches and athletic trainers want the athletes to be. You want to slightly overreach and then you want to come back down. And then, you know, it's, it's logical and progressive um, training for an athlete. Okay. So, um, but monitoring, so we have all these GPS watches, monitors, 
acceleration devices, right. which we spikes in training load, yep, yep. W- training load that we monitor in all of our athletes uh, here at, at the University of Connecticut, specifically you know soccer team. You right guys now. here at the Corey Stringer Institute. Yeah, so I work with University of Connecticut men's soccer and okay. uh, their strength conditioning coach, and we will monitor every single day the load that a player experiences on on the field, and then we'll look at that and be like, okay. You just had a, a load today of, let's say, 500 when normally you're at four, and that's very abnormal for you. We're going to give you some some rest, and we're making informed decisions about that rest. Maybe we didn't know that you hit 500 today when a game is only two. Right. You know, So, like, you just did twice that of a normal game in that one practice. Right. It's not very smart training because you should have specific training for what you're going to do. What devices do you guys use? Like are they and like how accurate are they? So we use um um combination GPS and they have accelerometers inside of them and the accelerometer measures in three dimensions, so x, y and z plane, so up, down, back, forth, yep. you know, and sideways. Uh and they're mounted on the player in the middle of their shoulder blades behind their back. And they'll you you pro- if you look carefully at a lot of NCAA events, they're allowed to wear them during the games. Okay. Um, and um, they run around, and we use and that device also picks up their heart rate. So we get heart rate data, we get GPS satellite data if they're outside, so distances, speeds, uh, etc. And then we get all the acceleration data from. It's a lot of data. Yeah, it's a ton of data. You actually need software and systems to m- analyze and manage it. Um, and it comes in every single day, and we put it into software that gives red us red flags. Yep. yep, and that red flags us and lets us know what's what's going on. Really cool. So, um, so I'm starting to wrap up the interview. Thanks for sharing all your your knowledge. Oh, you're welcome. Um, so, what's your favorite part about being an athletic trainer? Um, now it, it's kind of shifted now that I'm not practicing as much as an athletic trainer, seeing right. that my role is primarily research. Um, but my favorite. Uh, part about being an athletic trainer is that I can give back to the athletic training uh, community and then I can ultimately save lives through them. Right. And I can also assist in saving lives when I do, you know, medical events and things like that. But the more knowledge that I can impart on parents, coaches, athletes, researchers, athletic trainers, medical professionals, I feel like I'm I'm really giving back to athletic training. Awesome. And if I can help create jobs through the mapping and the liability piece right. and all of that, jobs for athletic trainers, I'm I'm a happy guy. Awesome. Um, what's your fondest memory during your time as an athletic trainer? Um, my fondest memory as an athletic trainer. So I had a, one athlete at Sacred Heart University, and he was my first uh, total knee, like ACL, MCL, LCL, meniscus, right. everything torn in this athlete's knee. Uh, and I was able to get him with his motivation and his, his uh, ability, get him back to play um, the following year. Awesome. To the point where where he became a, a stud at, at Sacred Heart Rugby, which was, was pretty awesome to see because he thought – it was his, over, yeah. His, you know, athletic – he was always an athlete, in, you know, in high school and stuff, and he found rugby at, at Sacred Heart. And uh, um, he had the right mindset about rehab. He did everything I asked him to do. Um, we listened to his body. He was honest with his body and telling me what was going on. That's huge, being an athlete yep. and dealing with injuries, being honest with how you really feel because no one yep. else knows. Because the athletic trainer, the health provi- healthcare provider, should be modifying that activity if an athlete is sore right. or – Things aren't going the way 
they're supposed to be going with regard to the healing process. Right. So to get that athlete back and to see him just dominate that sport for the next couple of years was, was pretty cool. Pretty awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Um, okay. This, this question I stole from another podcast I listened to Lewis sure. house school of greatness, but I think it's an awesome question. Um, if you had to tattoo one word on your forehead that you had to look at in the mirror every day, what would it be? Thrive. Thrive? Why is that? Because I think you need to thrive in the, any environment that you get placed in. And I watch a lot of you know survival um, movies, and I read a lot of survival literature. And the ability to not just survive but, but to, thrive right. is, is that next level. Cool. So you should always not be, uh, you know, um, settling for just surviving. Okay. You should work to exceed that you know if you don't have water day one and you get water day two but then you want more water so that you can constantly be going back to that so you can work on your shelter your fire or whatever right, yeah you should do those things awesome so. lastly what's your personal definition of perseverance my definition of perseverance would be um the the unrelenting ability to um achieve a goal okay awesome yeah Thank you very much, Dr. Huggins. I oh, appreciate you sharing your knowledge with my audience. Oh, you're totally welcome, Kevin. Um, and anything I could do for you guys in the future, let me know. Yeah, likewise. Thanks. All right, so I'm here with Richard Dodakian, and uh, Dr. Robert Huggins uh, gave us a, a brief synopsis of his story, but we're going to hear from Richard himself today. Um, so, Richard, can you kind of talk to just start off by talking about like what kind of led you know, to your exertional heat stroke on August 11th, 2013, you know, like what was kind of going on that day, you know, the weather, you know, your, your sleep habits, what was going on, you know, prior to that? Sure. Um, that, uh, day, um, back on, in 2013, it was a, a bright sunshine, uh, not that humid, but it was very sunny and, and warm as it always is in, uh, Falmouth, Mass on road race day. Um, and uh, so the weather was warm. Um, I had the night before uh, gone to a family wedding um, and uh, I behaved and only drank uh, cranberry juice and water and hydrated. There and you no go. Uh, yeah, unfortunately it didn't help me much. But, oh. uh, but leading up to the, uh, there was lack of sleep um, that night before. I usually get to sleep around 10 or 10.30 at night and I didn't, we had to drive a little to Falmouth, so I didn't get to bed till about 1.30 um, and got up around 5. So uh, I, I didn't feel tired, um, but my body was tired uh, due to lack of sleep. Um, and the few weeks leading up to that, I, uh, I deal a lot in my work with uh, Asia, so I'm on the computer relatively early in the morning, 4, 4.30 every day anyway, but this was uh, just a little bit more. So. It was hot, and um, and I didn't have a great night's sleep the night before. All right, and what, what was your training like uh, going into um, this race, like leading up to it at least? Um, I I don't think I um, I trained as much as I should have. Uh, I was probably running about uh, fifteen to twenty miles a week for maybe you know three weeks coming up to the race. Um, and uh and the foul mouth race is uh is how long it's seven miles seven uh, okay so you're yeah you're running well beyond that all right yeah it's about 7.1 miles so um 
you know, I, I think uh, my training, and I learned a lot after I, I got my heat stroke, uh, I, 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 like most people, don't care for the heat um, in, when you're running anyway. Yeah, and, definitely. Uh, so um, I ended up, I like to run in early in the morning, so I would get on the road by 7, 7.30 before it got too hot. Right, which kind of worked against you in this situation, right? It did, it did. And, um, uh, but that wasn't any different from any training I had in previous uh, Falmouth Road races. Um, I probably ran less than I should have because uh, I just you know, took things more for granted. Right. Uh, and uh, so... But it seems like the, the main difference between this race and other years was your lack of sleep, right? I think it really, it, it was, in my mind, in retrospect, it probably was the, the highest contributing factor, although it was a combination of a lot of things. Right, right, right. Okay. Um, all right, so can you talk about, talk us through the race, like, were you feeling like crap when you first started out, or like, when did you start feeling like, you know, something might not be right? Sure, thank you. Um, well, you know, I felt fine before the race, um, nothing unusual, butterflies like everybody does when they run something, and... Uh, um, you know, I ran through the race, and then I tried to keep my normal pace, um, and I tried to, I historically ran right around an hour for the seven miles, or a little bit less, okay. and I under an hour for uh, for many years going up to that. That's pretty good. Yeah, not too bad. I mean, I, I was in decent shape, so it was okay, but um, for an old guy, it's all right. <laughs> but, um, but no, I felt fine, and, and for, you know... Uh, half of the race, it was warm, and, and the sun was very bright, beating down on you. Um, I only stopped at probably one or two water stops, um, and during the race, because you it, felt like you weren't thirsty, or yeah, I felt I wasn't thirsty, and, and uh, you know, um, being a, a running for a long time and having a competitive nature, and in, in the past, you know, you stop for water, you slow down, and your time gets worse, but right. It, it it really came back to bite me uh, a couple of years ago, um, but during the race I felt fine and I was getting tired, um, but nothing unusual. Um, and I remember around the five five and a half mile mark, I saw uh, one of my daughters on the side of the road and and you know said hello to them and um, and uh, they said I didn't look good, but I didn't know I didn't look good. Right. Um, but I remember doing that and saying that and saying hello and um the last thing i do remember uh about the race was uh right around the 10k mark i remember hitting the 10k mark which 6.2 miles um and after that i don't remember a thing uh until i woke up in the medical tent all right so basically your your central nervous system was going like classically does with exertional heat stroke from what we've learned so far um, so I know that you credit, um, Rob or Dr. Huggins, um, with saving your life. So what kind of steps did he take to save your life? And when do you start remembering things like, wait, you know, remember interacting with, with, uh, him and the rest of the crew. Great. Thank you. Um, yeah, um, you know, I ended up from what I understand, uh, in, uh, we have marathon photo to thank for this. Uh, I did cross the finish line. I didn't know I finished. Oh, wow. Uh, and I had no idea. And uh, I found out um, after the fact, after I got into the, after I came to in the tent, but I crossed the finish line on autopilot and, 
and um, I collapsed after I, I finished. And um, the team from KSI and the, the local medical staff, they took me right into the tent, and um, the medical tent, which is right at the finish line, and um, they uh, immediately immersed me in the ice bath. Um, and uh, and um, do you remember that part? No, no, I don't. Um, but it, I, a couple minutes after that, I did come through. I when I when I did remember what I do remember was being waking up in that ice bath. Um, and uh, Rob was uh, Rob Huggins was um, basically talking me through the whole situation, and um, there was seven people in total that were working on me um, because the ice baths aren't the biggest thing in the world, so it's not like going in a whirlpool where you can get your whole body in there. Right, you got to like curl up. Yeah, my no, my arms and legs were hanging outside of the tub, so. They're rubbing ice and cold towels on that part, and my torso is inside the tub. Right. Um, so uh, I remember uh, waking up, and I had no idea where I was, and Rob talking me through, you know, we were in a medical tent and, and asking me who I was and what my name was, and, and I, I didn't know for the first few minutes. Um, I couldn't remember my wife's name, my kids' names, and, and it's... It was. It slowly started coming back to me. Um, I was. I was in a panic um, and very confused. Um, and uh, you know, the treatment was was both physical and psychological. Um, and they, you know, Rob and and the team knew what to do. And they there's a huge psychological aspect in the treatment of an exertional heat stroke that it goes unnoticed. Um, and, you know, it, it really helped me because I thought I was going to die. I asked Rob. He, I don't know if he said it in his piece of the... Um, I think he did, yeah. I asked him. And uh, I don't remember what he said. <laughs> but... Uh, but you, you remember know, being scared? I was scared to be Jesus. You know, I just just thinking about my wife and my kids. and um, Right. Uh, so, but I couldn't remember the names, mind you. Um, but... Uh, so, um, yeah, so then um, they ended up uh, um, taking my temperature rectally uh, at 107.7. Do you um, remember that part? <laughs> uh, this is funny. Um, and uh, if there is a funny aspect of this story, uh, this is it. Um, I don't remember the thermometer being, you know, inserted. Right. Um, as I was starting to my temperature started coming down a little bit. You know, Rob was asking me, you know, are you hurting anywhere? Does anything feel bad? <laughs> and uh, I, I said, no, I can feel okay. But, and, uh, oh, oh, no, wait a second. No, my butt really hurts. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know the thermometers. And he said, "That's a, there's a thermometer in there. So. That's hilarious. Exactly. Yeah, because I talked with Dr. Casa about this exact thing and how that's almost like how in order to get the most accurate temperature, you have to do it you know with a rectal thermometer and it's a very uncomfortable thing for not only the person who has to insert it but also the athlete that you know it's going into and i think that's like a major obstacle to diagnosing exertional heat stroke and getting people you know into the cold tub or whatever um as quickly as possible so it was interesting to hear you know your thoughts but it seems like you're already out of it before they did it so yeah i was i had no i had no choice right um all right so can you talk about what did you work with uh, 
the staff at KSI to kind of get back into running after this? And you actually, I'm sorry, but actually before we get to that, um, you avoided going to the hospital um, by, you know, getting into the cold tub quickly, right? Uh, yes and no. Oh, yes uh, and no. All right. So, so let me let me finish, complete that um, aspect of the story. So I was in the tub and, and uh, the team, my temperature started coming down slowly and about 20 minutes later they took me out of the tub um and uh it started spiking up again oh that's right i do remember this part yeah so they threw me back in the tub and then i all of a sudden it started dropping 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 and uh i think it went down to i don't know 94 93 and, right. and i was freezing cold um and my mind was there. So they end up taking me out of the tub and they're trying to warm me up, but they don't have anything on site to warm people up. Um, they yeah. only have to cool them down. Yeah, they put you in the sun, right? I remember this, yeah. Sun on the beach, because the medical tent's on the beach. So I'm laying in the sand trying to warm up and I couldn't. And uh, then they called the ambulance and they took me in um, to the Falmouth Hospital and they put like a heat blanket on me and. Um, Gave me some IV fluids, and uh, then I, my temperature, body temp came back to normal. All right. So, so yeah, we we yeah, I interviewed a couple other athletes who had you know had a heat stroke, but they either had to have like you know organ transplants or some other type of surgery, or it's like a super long recovery. So it seems like because you got you know the right medical attention quickly, you were able to avoid some of that um, that stuff. Luckily, no question. Um, I mean it's. This this race, uh, Falmouth is seven, like I said, seven point one miles, and it's kind of a sweet spot for heat stroke, because um, you know people like to go out and and uh, go and give a good time, um, so they'll run hard for that period of time. But it's not like running a five k race where you can go hard and you know your body temp doesn't spike. Yeah, you're done in a couple, you know, twenty minutes, thirty minutes. This is a little bit longer, and it's it's a lot shorter than a marathon. A marathon, people pace themselves more, and and there's a lot more eating and drinking during a marathon. So it's kind of a sweet spot. So they, they're you know I can't remember the number, but there's at least fifty to a hundred people in the medical tent because I wasn't I'm not the only one who hit with a heat stroke um at that race, and it happens every single year. Right. Yeah, I know the KSI staff has been working with them to try to prevent that from happening more and more. Um, all right, so yeah, can you talk about the work that you did with uh, KSI to start to get back into running again? Um, I actually, uh, sure. Um, I think what ended up happening, well, I ended up finishing and, and I had my treatment and uh, just at the hospital, they really warmed me up with, uh, with heat blanket and fluids. And um, after that, I ended up um, uh, getting out and... and I ended up going to work the next day, uh, half a day. I wasn't feeling great, but I was drinking plenty of fluids and things like that. Okay. Um, but um, I didn't. I my body was okay. I mean, I didn't because of the ice baths. I didn't really feel um, I had any uh, you know long term effects uh, of the heat stroke uh, at the time until I started you know training you know for another run. And my times were a lot slower, so it did have some effect on me. Um, but uh, no, KSI team really was educational. I mean, I became uh, good friends. I would consider myself a good friend with Rob and, and Dr. Casa and the rest of the team. And they're fantastic people about 
you know, teaching and learning about, you know, how you, you need to sleep, uh, you need to train in the heat, right. um, you know, you need to drink plenty of fluids. And these things, you know, I didn't, you know, you hear about it, but you don't really listen when you're kind of athletic and you just do things, you just go. But who, who in the world expects to get hit with a heat stroke? I certainly didn't. Um, yeah, and you're, when you're an athlete, no one thinks it's going to happen to you, you know. <laughs> like, so it's it's good to hear that coming from your mouth, you know, that it it can. So you got to take care of yourself and do the right things, you know, going into it. Um, all right, so you eventually you ran the the foul mouth race again, right? The following year, I run it since, yeah, and I'll run it again on Sunday. But right. uh, uh, the following year, I ran. Um, I trained a little bit uh, more in the heat acclimation, but um, were you I afraid had, going into it, or no, I wasn't actually because um, I felt okay in my training runs, and but I knew I had to do things differently. So um, a couple things I did different. Well, first of all, I was I was monitored by KSI. Um, they they uh, gave me a hot monitor, but they also gave me a, a, a thermometer in a pill. Right, ingestible, right? Yeah, and I swallowed it, and they, they were able to track me and track my temp, body temp. And, um, you know, I drank a lot more water during the race, and my pace was significantly less than it normally is because uh, I thought I was going okay, but I think the heat stroke did take something out of me. Um, I also ran with my daughter, which was good. She was, like, babysitting me. Okay, um, yeah. And uh, so... You know, I ran the race and I had no issues, and I, I got my body temp taken after the race in the at the medical tent uh, by KSI, um, and I believe it was somewhere around I don't know 102 or 103, a little less than 103, which you're going to have an elevated body temp when you run anyway, but nothing to the heat stroke range. Um, so uh, it was normal, and uh, I felt fine, and and uh, yeah, fine ever since. Nice. I've been okay. I mean, I, I, I feel good. I, I do a lot of other things. I try to play basketball and I play softball. Softball is not great exercise, but get out there and run around. And it's I fun like at least, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and uh, so I, I've been okay. And um, I just, I've had, I've had to do things differently. I, I've learned that I almost got lost my entire life in my family. And right. Family's life, but they would lose me. And um, it's just not a good feeling. So. I have a, my, my wife is a medical professional and um, she is uh, rightfully so uh, my conscience and she knows how I am competitively and how, how I've always tried to push myself and, and she said, you just got to slow down or, you know, you know, you're susceptible to this to happen again and it could be a lot worse. So uh, thank God she got, she got a good head on her shoulders a lot better than me. So. Yeah, a lot of times us athletes need uh, other people to reel us back in when we're getting a little too crazy. Um, all right, so so what's so special about the the foul mouth race? I've I've had I've heard you know a ton about it. So what makes it special to you and your family? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think what ends up happening in foul mouth is uh, um, for us and our family, and um, it's been a tradition to run the race and for, you know, for people to, to do some training in the summertime. Uh, it really started out years back, maybe 30, 35 years ago with my sister who, uh, who ran, began to run and then my run and then my wife ran a few years after that for many, many years. And 
over time, we've added, you know, myself and my uh, my two brothers, my brother-in-law, uh, my sister-in-law, um, my daughters. Both daughters have run. My nephews. So it's really it's a it's a family like a reunion for for us. And you know, it's it it also helps to you know get yourself into some. Uh, good condition. Yeah, good motivation to keep it going. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, we end up having a nice family gathering afterwards, and and uh, have a few uh, non-hydrational uh, beverages. Dehydrational beverages. <laughs> um, and uh, have some uh, have something to eat in a cookout, and and uh, you know wait for the times to come up, and we then we talk back. So awesome. Yeah, so it's really a lot of fun for us, and um, over the years, my parents would go and watch, and we all gather and talk about our, get on the bus together to go down to Woods Hole and, and talk about our experiences afterwards, and it's it's really a lot of fun, and, um, uh, you know, the heat stroke, heat stroke kind of woke me up a little bit, but uh, it's a great experience, though. So. Yeah, and it hasn't ruined your experience, and you continue to do it, and that kind of reminds me, like, what this podcast is about, like... We share stories that are kind of scary sometimes, you know, including my own story. Um, but we would never want people to not run, you know, the Falmouth race or to play football because, you know, of our stories, right? Because you do have these great experiences that go along with them. Um, so it's cool that you that you said that and you have such a great experience with, with your family at the Falmouth race. Yeah, yeah it's cool. Um, okay, I got, we're, so we're about to wrap it up here. I just got a few more questions for you. So what do you want people to learn from your experience with uh, exertional heat stroke? Um, Especially I, athletes, you know, with full-time jobs like, like you have. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think um, you cannot take things for granted, um, it, which I did and I've done for a long, long time. Um, you have to know that this could uh, – heat stroke um, – can hit anybody and my condition is I mean from a physical condition point of view I'm, I'm in decent shape for a guy who's over 50 um, I exercise regularly I'm not heavy um, I, you know I, I've done a lot of things so you know I didn't I took for granted that you know you're just gonna run like you always do when you're done right. but in the back of my mind or now back of everybody's mind what I think people have to think about is you can't take things for granted. You have to be proactive with preparation because um, an exertional heat stroke can hit anybody. Um, so you really have to heavily hydrate. Um, you really have to get your sleep. You know, I didn't care. I didn't really think it was an issue, but it certainly was. Um, so you, you can't take things for granted. And you have to prepare. You have to be better prepared. Um, and, you know, you're not going to run a a four minute mile out there but you need to if you're going to run competitively and as a competitive person you got to be ready you got to yeah you got to prepare like a competitive person right i mean but if, if if you don't have the the uh mindset or the education like i didn't before then this is what could can happen to you i mean that doesn't happen to many people and i certainly didn't think it was going to happen to me right uh, but it did, so you've got to prepare. Awesome. I don't know if this is going to have a similar answer, but I'll ask it anyway. What have you learned about yourself from this experience? Hmm. Well, you know, I, I, I learned that um, no one's infallible. Um, it's, it's no matter what kind of shape you're in, 
um, you have to respect what can possibly happen to you. Um, and uh, for me, a um, couple things, I hydrate a heck of a lot more. I started hydrating yesterday, even, um, which is Thursday, so I hydrate a lot more. I'm definitely sleeping more, um, and, uh, and I go slower. I mean, I, I, I hate to see, I see going slower, but I have to. Um, because, you know, going how I used to go, which was very comfortable for me, it's, it's not going to work anymore. So I don't know if there's a, a correlation between age or not, but that's what I learned. And if I, the thing that is most valuable to me is my wife and my kids and my family, I can't mess around with nature. So yeah, that's it. All right. That's a good answer. I mean, I'm, I'm 26 years old and I'm already starting to learn that same thing. Like I was big into CrossFit and you know, you think you're invincible. You can still do things that I could do when I was 14 and you still be able to walk the next day. And you know, one knee surgery later, obviously I learned that that's not quite the case. So, um, that's a great answer. So my last question that I ask uh, most of my guests to, to end it is what's your personal definition of perseverance? Um, Um, I think you have to really focus in, on the task at hand, um, but you have to do it with some grain of caution in the back of your mind. All right. So if, if you asked me this question four years ago before I had my stroke, I would have said just let it all fly and have at it. <laughs> but now you, you, know, you, you really got to um, take into account something, or at least me personally. Uh, I learned. Um, I learned the hard way when I saw my kids crying, thinking I was going to die, um, and me thinking I was going to die. I didn't cry, but I thought I was going to die because I was a wreck. Right. Right. Um, but I learned, and um, uh, I think I'm a better person for it now. Well, awesome. Thanks, Richard, for coming on and uh, talking with us and telling your story. And I wish you good luck in the, the Falmouth race of 2016. And if you guys could uh, snap a family picture or something before the race or after the race and send it to me, I'll, I'd like to include that in the, the blog post that I post for this week's episode. Guaranteed, Kevin. No problem. And really appreciate you taking the time with the heads and tails in interviewing me, and I hope it helps uh, the people who listen to it. Thank you very much. All right, Kevin. Have a good day. Thank you. See you, Richard. Thanks.